0: What is the, what do you want me
1: to say? You have found Chameleon, Chameleon. 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 season 3 Wild Boys A production of Campside Media Oh. A
0: heads up This show contains discussions of an eating disorder If you or someone you know is struggling with eating disorders please listen with care
1: In the summer of 2003, I was a teenager living in Vernon, British Columbia, Canada, the town that I was born in. I was working full-time at a video rental place, which at the time was a line of work that existed. That summer, I was learning how to drive stick, I just got the cartilage pierced in my ear, and every morning upon waking up, I put on exactly three necklaces, a shark's tooth, a hemp, and a puka shell. For sartorial reference, it's helpful to note that this was the same summer that the OC went on the air. One night, after a shift at the video place, I met up with a friend at Kalamalka General Store, which is sort of the center of the teenage universe in Vernon. How we set up this rendezvous before either of us had cell phones is a complete mystery to me. Did we email a day earlier, call each other's parents' landlines? My imagination fails, but we managed it. She showed up, I showed up. We bought slushies and potato wedges and crossed the street to the beach. We cooled off in the water and sat in the sand in our bathing suits, basking in the last bit of sun before it ducked behind the mountain. It was golden hour, so most of the families were packing up to head home. And I remember it was rec volleyball night, so the volleyball courts were kicking up all this dust that made it seem like the light was glowing around us. And that's when I saw them. There were these two boys walking through the orange haze along the shoreline who I'd never seen before. They looked to be around my age and they stood out for two reasons. One, Vernon is a small enough town where if you don't recognize someone your age, that's remarkable on its own. And two, You couldn't not notice how skinny these boys were, especially the younger one. He was about as tall as me, around six feet, but he looked to be under 100 pounds. They weren't doing anything shady or nefarious, they were just walking by, but it was enough to trip this alarm within me that rang out, something is up. I watched them slink by and continue down the beach. I didn't see them again until a few months later, this time in the newspaper. I came down for breakfast and my mom was eating toast and reading the paper and she pointed to the page. Have you heard about them? It was a photo of the boys from the beach. No, what about them? She said, these boys came from the woods. I'm Sam Mullins. From Campside Media, this is Chameleon, Wild Boys. Part one, Arrival. I always couldn't have known it, but they showed up in the right place at the right time. In a sense, this only could have happened in Vernon. You need to know about my hometown. Vernon's located in the Okanagan, a region in the interior of British Columbia, sort of halfway between Vancouver and Calgary. Historically, it's been a middle-class place, but the whole region has sort of been transformed into an outdoor playground for the wealthy. The is known for its vineyards, golf courses, ski resorts, its lakes, and the mythological beast, the Ogopogo, who lives in one of said lakes, allegedly. Vernon's a white town, it's a hockey town, there's lots of churches, there's lots of retired folks, there's a winter carnival parade every year, and the city has never once held a gay pride parade. The crown jewel of Vernon, and in my opinion, the whole Okanagan, is Kalamalka Lake. It deserves a Google image search. Seriously, do that now. So, Cal Lake is home to Cal Beach, and it's the beach in a town filled with beaches. And right across the street from the beach is the hallowed Cal General Store. If I could distill the vibe of Cal Store into one transaction, it'd be a teenager in a bathing suit, buying a slushie, and then paying with a wet $5 bill. And then when the cashier's back is turned, they steal a lighter. That kind of place. And in the summer of 2003, strange things were afoot at Cal Store. The boys from the beach seemed to make the store their home base, and people were talking.
0: There are- kind of odd. You know, these two wild children appear in our community. They're always together, you never, they're right. never apart, they're always together. Yeah, extremely
1: thin. Very skinny, Looked like an alien.
0: You know, you could see his, his collarbone. I
1: mean, I didn't even know how he walked. Rags on their back. And they don't have a home. They had no place to live.
0: And then I remember thinking, that was really odd
1: but it wasn't what they were wearing or what they were doing necessarily. It was more of like an energy or an aura thing. You could look at them in any context and be like, wait, what? They were a wrinkle in the fabric, a glitch in the matrix. No one knew what to make of them. Like the boys showed up at Cal Store every day and a woman who worked there at the time told me that the boys would use the payphone sometimes, but she wasn't sure if they were using it Or just playing with it.
0: You know, like, (laughs) that was my impression.
1: That's Lynn, who managed the produce department in 2003. And while the rest of Vernon's teens were buying or stealing Snickers bars and slushies, these boys were only ever interested in buying one thing. Fruit. Only ever fruit. And the other thing was their relationship wasn't obvious at a glance. The older boy seemed like he held some kind of power over the younger one, which raised all kinds of other questions. Like, did he kidnap the younger one? Was he forcing him not to eat? Is that why the younger boy was so skinny? Are they lovers, criminals on the run?
0: Yeah, I had no idea what was going on with those
1: two. (laughs) (laughs) In general, the boys were keeping an extremely low profile for months. The summer was receding and the nights were getting colder and the story might have ended there. The boys could have disappeared or moved on to some other town. If not, for Tammy McDougal Ryder.
0: Hello. Oh, jeez, sorry, Elliot. Hello. Sorry, I just stepped on my dog.
1: <laughs> I genuinely can't imagine how all of this would have unfolded if Tammy didn't get involved. Getting involved is kind of Tammy's whole thing.
0: I'm just the type of person that isn't going to sit back and owe someone else to take care of it. And, you know, I just, I am that person that will take care of it.
1: In 2003, Tammy was in her early thirties and had just moved to Vernon with her husband and three young children.
0: I was a full-time mom. I was just raising three kids, just running up and down Silver Star Mountain for hockey (laughs) in early mornings and late evenings. And my husband, uh, I think at the time, was probably working out of town a lot.
1: One day, Tammy was driving through downtown Vernon with her kids when she saw the boys for the first time.
0: I had my kids in the car, and I remember driving by the library. And um, I just remember it was kind of slow motion. I remember seeing them going, you just couldn't help but naturally stare. Like, holy smokes. what's up with these guys because they looked so different and a little um the one just looked so it, he was just so emaciated and it was so scary it was so scary and and just what they were wearing it just seemed sort of i don't want to say cult-like but it just seemed weird it just wasn't normal
1: but unlike everyone else in town tammy didn't just mentally note it or forget about it where other people sit back tammy goes into action
0: it kind of made it a mission to see if I can find them to help them.
1: Right. Tammy couldn't get them out of her head. She couldn't even sleep. As she went through her week, she'd ask anyone she met, do you know where I can find those strange boys? She was struck by how many people knew exactly who she was talking about. She'd only get a few words out of her mouth, and someone would be like, oh yeah, I've seen those kids. And one night, she was at her kid's hockey practice, talking about the boys yet again. Someone said, I
0: think I've seen them around Cal Store. And that's where, so then I became uh, 5-0, or whatever you want to call it.
1: Tammy drove down the mountain and across town to Cal Store and parked beside the rail trestle. She got out of her car and tried to find a spot where she could get across the creek. Behind the store is a small but densely wooded area with some unused old railroad tracks, and beyond that sits this large, empty field of untamed wild grass. It's a real no-man's land back there. The only reason anyone ever set foot in that field was to bury a family pet. Shout out to Maggie and Boo. But apparently the boys were living in the woods back there. Tammy brought her husband with her because... Once you take even a few steps into the brush back there, things get sketchy real fast. It's so well-hidden back there, and the combination of the creek and the noise from the road would make it difficult to hear, say, a woman screaming for help. Tammy's husband spotted a fallen log that they teetered across to the other side, and immediately Tammy spotted something through the trees.
0: But I remember just going just ever so far, and... We did find a tent. There was uh, something set up, and you ju- I just knew I, I knew I found them.
1: On the ground were avocado rinds, and among a pile of books, she found a folded map of the Okanagan. So the boys had clearly been there recently, but right now, they were nowhere to be seen.
0: So I went into Cal's store and I asked the owners. I just said, have you seen two boys? And they're like, yeah, they come in here all the time, and they use the payphone."
1: So Tammy asked the cashier for some paper, a pen, and some change in quarters.
0: This local store had a payphone, and I asked them if they would give them this note, if they saw them again. And so I wrote a note and just said, I really wanted to help them, and if you could please call this number. And I left some quarters, because back in the day we had payphones, and um, I left quarters for them and told them to call me. And they did. They called me, I think, the next day or that day. Was right away.
1: Were you expecting them to call you?
0: No. No, absolutely not. I wasn't expecting them to call me, let alone call me that right away.
1: When Tammy's phone rang, the last person she expected on the other end was one of those boys. His voice was so quiet, she had to strain to hear.
0: He called, and they were very soft-spoken, very soft-spoken, which made it really strange too. Like Mm -hmm. they talked like, they didn't talk with um, energy, if you know what I mean, They super soft-spoken. And he said he'd love to meet me. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, okay.
1: So as soon as Tammy finds someone to watch her kids, she rushes out the door. They called her so quickly, she thought that they must be in a pretty dire situation. So she gets there as fast as she can, swinging by the grocery store on the way.
0: And I brought my bags of food, you know, cheese and apples and chips or something. Stuff that I thought young people would want.
1: Mm -hmm. When Tammy pulled in, she saw them right away, waiting for her. Tammy got out and enthusiastically introduced herself to the boys. They towered over her, both easily over six feet tall. Next to the store, there's this wooden patio that hangs over the creek with some patio furniture chained together and a an nice machine. They sat down. And as she sat across from them, Tammy got her first really good look at them. She ballparked the younger one to be maybe 15 or 16, with darker hair, his thin frame swimming in a baggy sweater. And the older one looked to be around 20, with a patchy blonde beard and more of a broad-shoulder, athletic build. The boys told her that they were brothers. The older one said, I'm Tom. The younger one, I'm Will. Tom and Will Green.
0: Will didn't speak much at all, which was also curious to me. And um, yeah. Tom was definitely the more the the leader.
1: Did you suspect drugs?
0: Not at all, not at all. No, they were just I'm telling you, like they were just very different.
1: Tammy was taken aback by how still they seemed. They had this remarkable groundedness, not necessarily of a religious person, but of someone deeply convinced of something.
0: Vague. It was very slow and vague and very mysterious and yeah. It definitely made me very, um, like, this is not normal.
1: Beyond their names and that they were brothers, they didn't share any details about where they were from or why they were in Vernon. And Tammy didn't pry. She didn't want to scare them off before she had the opportunity to help because they clearly did need help.
0: Um, and I just said, hey, I want to help. Just get them off the streets or whatever their situation was.
1: The boys accepted Tammy's offer, so she got to work immediately. Tammy figured the best way to help them would be to get some social assistance, to get government help. So a few days later, she piled the boys into her car and drove them to the government building downtown.
0: I ended up bringing them there, and it was that's sort of when things... When we brought them there, that's when I realized, that's when their story got really big.
1: When it was their turn, Tammy explained to the clerk that they were hoping to get some sort of assistance. But when the government agent asked the boys for ID, the boys looked at Tammy confused and said, we don't have ID. And
0: that's kind of where the story spun. Everyone was just like, what do you mean you have no ID? So then I'm sitting there dumbfounded as well. Like I just brought these kids in here, they have no ID what's going on. And they wouldn't really talk to the person.
1: So the clerk kind of shrugged and was like, I'm sorry, if there's no ID, there's not really anything we can do here. So Tammy and the boys piled back into her car.
0: And then like when the doors closed, I just remember me being like, what do you guys mean you don't have ID? Like, how do you not have ID? Where were you born?
1: The boys told her that they were raised in an extremely remote cabin, deep in the wilderness, and that this was their first ever contact with society. There, in Tammy's car, they told their story for the first time. A story that they would tell cops, lawyers, politicians. A story that would be told in the local and then international media. A story that would begin to buzz through Vernon. Have you heard? Those boys, are from the bush. They lived in some sort of cabin that was partially or fully underground. Had apparently never seen a telephone. Uh, They'd
0: never been to school. They'd never been to dentists. They'd had no access to media. They weren't ever in a hospital, nothing.
1: Uh, They were unfamiliar with uh, television. They were like almost non-existent. The boys said that they were raised by their parents, Mary and Joseph, in the mountains a couple hours north of Vernon, near a town called Revelstoke. They told their parents that they wanted to become vegetarian, an admission that led to this intense ideological fight, culminating with their parents saying that they'd become an alien influence in the home, and they sent them away. So the boys left their home, left everything that they'd ever known, found a highway, and just hitched a ride south. Ultimately, until they saw a beautiful lake out the window, told the driver to stop, and found a spot to camp behind a general store. Suddenly, all the bizarre and mysterious things about these two made a lot more sense. They were bush boys. But without government help, they were bush boys without a home, without food, and without clothes fit for the coming winter. But at least the boys had one thing going for them now. Tammy. Tammy got down to work. She was newish in town, but Tammy being Tammy, she, of course, already knew a lot of people. And when she called, she had a very persuasive enthusiasm that made people excited to step up. People wanted to help.
0: Their situation was intriguing. You know, it was like finding the lost tribe in New Guinea. They were unique. They would have been worth a sociological study. And I think that's what intrigued me.
1: That's Dale Kermode. He was a lawyer at the biggest law firm in town. Tammy figured she might need some legal help as she tried to get these boys to start existing on paper, with government IDs and whatnot, so she called Dale. It didn't take much explanation before Tammy heard the words yes and pro bono on the other end of the line. Who would turn down a chance to advocate for the Bush boys? Not Dale Kermode. So there was a sliver of the legal issue and a
0: large plank worth of curiosity.
1: The scuttlebutt about the Green Brothers made its way to the local politicians, who began to wrestle with what to do about them. Daryl Stinson, the local member of Parliament, got a call from one of his caseworkers. And, I mean, she was really worried about the kid that was so skinny. Mm -hmm. Really, really worried. And uh, I said, well, can you get a picture of him and send it? to me, just sent it to me. so she did, and I said, no, he's he got to get, he's got to get something done with him right now. So the MP called the mayor of Vernon, Sean Harvey's office. Daryl Stinson's office, our member of parliament, called saying, Um, look, there's these two young men. Can we provide some emergency aid for them? And then the mayor runs this past his police chief, Randy Kolibaba, And he asked me, what do you think? And the first thing... Randy Kolibaba, is- being a cop, was skeptical, like, sure. They're telling us they're children of the bush, but we have no proof. They could be criminals on the run. So he told the mayor. I am really leery. Um, There's just too many unknowns. I would suggest that the city not take an official position on this. So the mayor, while not taking a position publicly, did manage to free up a little bit of cash for the boys. Just enough to buy the city some time to get a little more information about them. But it turned out that they barely needed that money. Vernonites were volunteering to help left and right. Within 24 hours of Tammy first sounding the alarm, a city council member had arranged for them to be put up at the Vernon Lodge Best Western Hotel. He said he'd pay for them to stay there as long as they needed, out of his own pocket even. So that was a good start. It was late October by this time, so with the seasons changing, the boys were gonna need a full-on winter-appropriate makeover. So Tammy called Vernon Salvation Army, who met with the boys and hooked them up with winter coats, grocery cards, even a little cash. A private citizen even gave the boys a credit card that they paid off every month. The community of Vernon was doing the community thing and doing it well. Once she triaged the situation, Tammy started thinking longer term. She called up Patrick Allen, the guy who ran the local hostel, and asked, Can you put these boys up, like, long-term?
0: He was so kind and said he would help. He was another person that just said, sure, I'll, I'll put them up.
1: Tammy said she wasn't sure how much money the boys would be able to pay, so Patrick said not to worry. They could do odd jobs around the place in exchange for their lodging. As the boys settled in, Tammy would swing by as often as she could to check on them.
0: I was going by there every couple days, sometimes every day, and really just felt motherly towards them because I wasn't sure, you know, what the heck is going on.
1: Tammy chose the hostel intentionally. It seemed like the right atmosphere.
0: Lots of people from all over. Yeah. Um, Lots of different accents. (laughs) Um, Just people coming and going. It was just a really nice vibe. It was good energy and, uh, yeah, just really young, cool people.
1: The hostel would serve a double purpose. It'd give the boys a safe place to stay for the winter, but also serve as a sort of halfway house where the boys could be gently integrated into modern society, guided by the community of benevolent, open-minded, and diverse hostel people. It seemed perfect. But when Tammy would swing by, she was bummed that the boys were never mingling. They were keeping to themselves mostly, staying in their room.
0: And it always smelled when I went to see them because there was so much rotting fruit, like or fruit that was kind of, you know, it always smelled like fruit and gas.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They smell like teenage boys. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but just from all the fruit that they were eating, right? Like they never would eat anything else.
1: They had a very specific diet. And once Tammy witnessed it, she started to understand how this six foot tall kid weighed only a hundred pounds.
0: They ate only stuff from the ground. And raw. They nothing cooked. And I'm talking raw eggs. Right. They didn't cook anything. Yeah, they ate avocados like crazy. Everything had to be pure. Oh, and I don't think things could have a root to them. That was the other thing. Like, they, they were worried of root vegetables because there was issues with roots.
1: Any pressure to get them to eat anything besides fruit was met with strong resistance. It felt less like a diet, and more like a disorder.
0: It wasn't just anorexia like we would see with our children here, right? Like Mm -hmm. in in, in the normal realm of of teenagers. It wasn't like, oh, I don't want to eat today, or I'm just going to eat vegan, or... It was just, yeah, like, something's weird here. They never ate one ounce of anything that was unpure.
1: For two kids that weighed as little as they did, they ironically seemed to have an obsession with food, procuring it, eating it, talking about it.
0: I don't even remember if they had a TV or anything. Right. It was all about nutrition and reading up on food. Always there was an obsession with food, especially with Will.
1: But more than what he was eating, it was Will's state that concerned Tammy. And it seemed like it was getting worse. In every description of the boys, people told me two things. Will was just so thin, and Tom was the one calling the shots. So Tammy tried talking to Tom about Will. Like, hey, we have to convince your brother to let me take him to a doctor. We need to course correct this diet. We got to get his weight up. But Tom seemed strangely flippant about it all.
0: It it was like, it was frustrating because I did feel like Tom was holding him back from getting... almost like he was basically speaking for him a lot and holding him back, for sure. Like, you know, how can you not be concerned? Because I felt like he was brainwashing him. And there was definitely something going on where he was not letting him speak for himself, but he would, but also I felt like he was convincing him that this diet was the way to go.
1: The gang at the hostel would try gently engaging with Will about his diet, too. But bubbling below the surface of all of this was the fear that if anyone pushed the issue too hard, the boys might up and disappear back into the bush. Any prying related to their diet, health, or any questions about their parents or the specific location where their childhood home was, was met with stonewalling or sudden defensiveness. There seemed to be a deep-seated distrust of systems and the outside world in the boys that put those trying to help them on eggshells. So Tammy and the gang sort of bit their tongues and decided to play the long game and work to slowly earn the boys' trust by going at a pace that they seemed comfortable with. And by and large, the boys did seem relatively happy with the state of things. Slowly, the boys began to offer details about their lives that their mother taught them to read by showing them National Geographics, that their home had a water wheel to generate electricity. They think their grandparents are still alive, but they've never met them. The boys said that their parents would go into town a couple times a year for supplies, but they didn't know where their money came from. Tammy started to really care for the boys, started to have the same hopes for them that she had for her own children. Education, independence, passions, careers. Every chance she had, she'd take them out into the world to a hockey game or the library. She tried to get them out into the community, just encourage them to be teenage boys.
0: Like, I I would joke about things like what it could be like to be, you know, a living a real life as a teenager or a young adult, right? right? And you guys could be doing this. You could be, you know, skateboarding or whatever.
1: And maybe they could have just hung out in a small room with a large amount of fruit indefinitely if immigration officials hadn't gotten word of the strange bush boys of Vernon. The immigration wanted to know, okay, where are you guys coming from? Randy, the police chief again. They didn't just come from Morris. They had to have come from somewhere. And under the Immigration Act, they can compel you for a hearing. And in essence, that's what immigration, they wanted to talk about, but they were being spirited away. Immigration officials had scheduled an appointment with the boys, but at the time of their appointment, they were being spirited away. They were driving north in a car with Tammy and one of their lawyers, heading away from the immigration offices. They were going back to the bush.
0: So I just remember we hatched this plan to get them to go Mm -hmm. um, to Revelstoke.
1: Revelstoke, the place their parents lived, the place they left. The boys were going home in search of one thing. The one thing that could buy these boys their new life that Tammy dreamt of for them and get immigration off their backs their ID, their official government documents, proof that they were Will and Tom Green, Canadian boys who could get driver's licenses or go to school or get a job and just be free to live their lives. The boys were not into this idea at first.
0: I'm like, well, let's talk to them. Just, I I can help you there. Like, I'm sure we can help them no matter what's happened, right? Right. And they're like, no, no, no.
1: Their biggest fear was that their actions would leave their parents exposed to the outside world, undermine what their parents had so carefully built. And more than that, things between the boys and their folks had ended kind of dramatically. It was a big ask for them to go back, dangerous even, knowing that their parents had made clear that they wanted them gone. But Tammy told them, look, either we go to Revelstoke to talk to your parents or the cops do, you choose.
0: And then we finally did get them to get on board.
1: The boys agreed, and a plan was made. They would get in a car with Tammy and one of their lawyers, and they would head to Revelstoke, go into the woods alone, and try talking to their parents. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.
0: We picked them up so early in the morning to go, and I remember thinking, like, holy smokes, this is actually happening.
1: I've done this drive from Vernon to Revelstoke dozens of times in my life, and every time I think of the opening shots of The Shining, As you drive north, it's like the mountains are closing in on you. Getting so high, you almost need to put your head on the floorboards to see the top of them. It's winter conditions as they get closer to town. The tension growing in the car with each direction the boys give from the back seat.
0: Okay, turn here, turn here. When we got into Revelstoke, you know, go down this way, go down this way, and we're heading into the bush.
1: It's quiet in the car, broken only occasionally by Tammy rehearsing the plan
0: just ask your parents for ID, then that's all we need. They don't need to be bothered. And if they have ID, awesome. If not, just find out where you were born so we can at least help you obtain that.
1: Right. right? It's the first time Tammy has seen them nervous. Before long, they're on an old logging road outside of town, and the boys tell the lawyer who's driving to stop.
0: They wouldn't let us come with them at all. They wanted us to stay there. And, uh... We're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. They don't, they're protecting their parents, right?
1: Tammy's heart is pounding as she watches the boys get out of the car and start heading into the bush.
0: And yeah, they went in the bush and they were gone for a very long time.
1: 45 minutes goes by. An hour. Tammy's head is spinning.
0: Were they going to come out with this Mary and Joseph, (laughs) right? And a bunch of little kids? Like, I had no idea. Um... Yeah, I was really anxious. I was, and I was hopeful that the parents were going to come out.
1: Finally, the boys emerge from the woods. There's Will. There's Tom. But there's no one else.
0: I'm still thinking, oh, the parents are coming, right? That's what I'm thinking. And uh, yeah, no, we get there. And they just said our, they don't want any part of this. And they don't, they weren't willing to give anything.
1: Tammy is devastated. And then she's angry.
0: Thinking, how can parents do this? Like, they've left them with nothing. They're not even going to tell them any information. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, the parents are so, you know, withdrawn and just don't want them to even have their kids to even have their own information about themselves.
1: As the boys buckle back up, Tammy feels a wave of anxiety. It's one thing to feed and clothe someone in need, but now she's helping them dodge immigration authorities. They'd rolled the dice taking this trip. Their immigration hearing was on the same day, but they were playing hooky from it in the hopes that they'd be driving back to Vernon right now, sure, having skipped out on immigration, but bearing a golden ticket, the boys' ID, and all would be forgiven. But now they were driving back empty-handed. And then the lawyer's phone rings.
0: On our way back, the lawyer got a phone call, I think from his office or the police or something. It was an important phone call.
1: There's a warrant out for you guys or a police blockade on the road back from Vernon. I'm not sure. Just the police are looking for you guys. The lawyer gets off the phone and turns to Tammy. You need a lawyer.
0: At that point, the lawyer had said that I had to attain him as, his law- as the lawyer and he had to say something. And I had to, re- I remember I had to um, agree to it verbally to him, like, will you attain me as your lawyer or whatever.
1: In the several months I've spent interviewing people and learning everything I can about Tom and Will Green, I think of this moment a lot. Because as they're driving back from the bush, back to square one, worried about the boy in the back seat who appears to be dying before their eyes, not sure how to help him, unsure what awaits for them back in Vernon. An arrest warrant, jail, As they make this drive, Tom and Will Green know something that not Tammy, not the lawyer, nor anyone they've met in Vernon knows. They know that of everything they've said, who they are, where they're from, and what they were doing in Vernon in the first place, they know that not a single word of it is true. is a production of Campside Media with Sony Music. Wild Boys was reported and written by me, Sam Mullins. It's produced by Abukara Don, and our editor is Karen Duffin. Our senior producer is Ashley-Ann Krigbaum. Sound design and mixing by Hannes Brown and Garrett Tiedemann. Original music by Hannes Brown, Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Our fact checker is Alex Yablon. Additional production support on this episode by Lydia Smith. Special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Josh Dean, and Adam Hoff. If you or someone you know is struggling with your relationship with food, please know you're not alone. There are free, confidential helplines with people just waiting to help. In the U.S., You can call or text the National Eating Disorder Association at 1-800-931-2237. That's 1-800-931-2237. In Canada, the National Eating Disorder Information Center hotline is 1-866-633-4220. That's 1-866-633-4220. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.